Okay, so I want everyone to imagine a, a couple of things. I want to give you two scenarios, and I want you to imagine yourself in these scenarios. The first one is, imagine you're the leader of a church community. Okay, so you're the leader of a church community, and because you believe the gospel is clear, that we are all equal. We are all equal as sinners, equal in our need of grace, equally loved by God, and equally righteous because of what God does for us, and you believe in that salvation has nothing to do with ourselves. It has nothing to do with what we have done or how we were born, etc., etc. So because of that belief in the gospel, you love all people, people equally. And among your friends, you have many good Arab friends. Some of those believe in Jesus Christ. Some don't believe in Jesus Christ. And because you are free in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you engage them all on their terms. You eat their meals, you go to their worship service, both of the Christian services and other services. You help them with their immigration issues if they have immigration issues. You help them adjust to a new country. You listen to their stories, you tell them your stories. Basically, you're very good friends. But then some very important and powerful people, mostly non-Christians, but some call themselves Christians, are threatening the heads of the denomination of the church that you're a leader of because of this friendship with Arabs. Because the head of your denomination doesn't want to see this denomination or the church shut down, they start pressuring you to reconsider your friendship with those Arabs. Except, of course, for the Arab Christians who are willing to abandon their own cultural ways and start acting and dressing and eating and worshiping just like you. What would you do? And before you answer that from the comfort of your world, remember, try to imagine this is a very real threat from people who are serious and who hate Arabs and may cause substantial problems for you, for your community, and your family. What would you do? That's one scenario. Now I'm going to give you another scenario. Now imagine you are the leader of a church community that you have pastored and cultivated and helped grow for over 10 years. The congregation loves and respects you, and they have heard you preach the gospel of grace and mercy and love for all people over and over, and they have seemed to embrace that message of the gospel of grace and mercy. Then there is a profound tragedy in your town. A young man went into the local school and shot dozens of people, 13 of whom died. Then he killed himself. His family devastated beyond imagining, both at the horror of what their son did as well at the, as the horror of losing their own son, reach out to you for help. They need a place to have a funeral for their son as well as for ongoing support. A place to find love because the entire town has turned against them. A place to find help and faith in the midst of their darkness. Now you don't even think twice about it. You know the gospel mean, means God loves even that boy and his parents. But the church leaders cannot accept this and they threaten you with your job or at minimum that most of the people in your church will leave. What would you do? 
And again, remember, you have a family to support. Here's the thing. Both of these scenarios are true stories. And the leaders in each event both made radically different choices. One made a decision based on fear, forgetting that his identity was in Jesus Christ alone, and the other, fully embracing his identity in Jesus Christ alone, made a decision based on courage. I want to start with the one that made a decision based on fear, St. Peter. That's what our text is all about today. Among scholars, this is known as the Antioch Incident. Basically, what happened is this. St. Peter was living in Antioch, living out the gospel, but then started to pull away from eating with his Gentiles, friends. See, at this time, there was tremendous pressure and constant threats against Christianity from some Jews across the known world at this time. And they would especially make it known that while it was one thing to be a Jew who believed in Jesus, which was bad enough, it was entirely another thing to be a Jewish Christian and live like the Gentiles. And that led to severe persecution. And this threat from outside the church played perfectly into the hands of certain people inside the church who did not embrace the gospel of grace but were stuck in their own legalism and demanded that Gentiles become like them and observe the Mosaic Covenant in order to be Christians. And Peter was afraid of this group. I think I have it underlined. Oh, no, I don't. So he was afraid of this group from the Gentiles because he was afraid of this group. This group Paul called the circumcision group. Okay? And I think Peter was probably very afraid of the possibility of wider persecution that the whole church was going to suffer if he continued his friendship with the Gentiles, so he withdrew from it. And Paul would have none of it. Paul was furious what Peter was doing. For Paul, this was nothing less than a way of living that betrayed the very gospel. See, this language here is very telling. Not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. There's, there's an original word in here where we get our English root word, ortho. And we get our term orthopedics from. When you have trouble with your feet and walking, you go to an orthopedic so you can walk straight. That's where we get this from. Walking according to the truth of the gospel. Walking straight. See, the gospel demands a proper response. And I think this is unfortunately where evangelical Christianity has let us down. We think it just demands a certain uh, mental assent to some truth or some certain prayer and that's it. No, the gospel demands a response. A walking according to the truth of the gospel that we claim to believe. So, if the gospel really does mean we are all equal in God's eyes, and I don't think you can read the Bible and not get that, because none of us deserve to be saved. We're all equal as sinners, we're all equal in our need of grace, and we're equally righteous because of what God does for us. It has nothing to do with what we do for ourselves. If that's the truth, then on what grounds is Peter not eating with the Gentiles? Obviously not the truth of the gospel. It's obviously something very different that he's choosing to live this kind of life. And Paul exposes the hypocrisy of his actions. He says, Peter, you are a Jew, but you live like a Gentile. Then why do you make the Gentiles live like a Jew? See, here's the thing. Peter knew the truth. Peter actually believed the truth. 
The, settle, the matter had been settled among the apostles. So when Kevin was reading, that's what was taking place at the beginning of this. Paul was remembering when he went up to Jerusalem to meet with the big three. He met with the big three in private. That would be, that would be Peter, James, and John, the founders of the church. And they decided in private, yes, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing else is important. Nothing else matters. And Paul was brilliant. If you noticed, he brought Titus with him to that meeting. Titus was a Greek, uncircumcised Greek. And Paul brought him right into the meeting. He said, here you go. Here he is uncircumcised, and he's a believer. If you want him circumcised, make it happen now, and then I'll preach a different gospel. And the big three said, no, we're not going to make that, because that's not the gospel. Peter knew this, knew this. But now, for some reason, he was walking inconsistent with what he believed. Pressures of friends, pressures of other teachers that don't believe in the gospel, pressures from outside the church. Remember the quote from last week? This great quote from Witherington, excuse me. Law is replaced by Christ as the determinative prism through which all must be viewed. Peter had not considered his actions through the prism of Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul was so upset. Because see, not only, to use very Christian language, was Peter living in sin. Yes, I'm sorry, he wasn't just being rude to the Gentiles. He was living in sin. That's what it means not to live according to the gospel. Okay, so to use Christianese language, which I don't use a lot of here. But he was not only living in sin himself, he was leading others astray as well. You see, now all of these Gentile believers in Antioch were forced to think to themselves, whoa, wait a second. This is the big guy. This is as big as it gets. This is the Pope. And I know we Protestants hate to hear that, but anyway, this is it. And if, he's, if he is saying we need to become and live according to the Mosaic Covenant, then I guess we better, or we're risking our salvation. So Peter, by his actions, was changing the gospel. And we all know what Paul thought about people who change the gospel. They should be accursed. Because if you change the gospel at all, you're not preaching any gospel at all. This is why this letter is such a powerful and angry letter. So here's the question, what about us? What about us? Do we live consistent with the gospel we claim to believe? Now, before, now before your mind starts going to bad places, because that, that's old theology. For those that haven't been at Cana long enough, or even those of us who have, our minds can still go to bad places. Christianity is not imperative. I am not sitting here today pointing a finger at me or at you saying you better get in line with the gospel or else God's not going to love you. That's not what I'm saying. Christianity is indicative. When Christ has become the center of our lives, things change. And that's why we constantly examine ourselves so we can get closer to Christ. So no one should be beating themselves up. And I want you to remember something. There's two sides of this, not walking consistent with the gospel. One is a constant struggle. That's one thing. We have that. We know what's right. We want to do what's right, but we struggle with it. Right? That happens a lot in our interpersonal relationships or in other areas of our lives that we are just, we struggle where we're weak. Right? Okay, that's one thing. But we still have to get on top of that. But how we get on top of that is not doing it ourselves. We can't become like Christ. There's failure number one of religion. All right, that's phase one of faith, stage one of faith that we need to work ourselves out of. We can't, we can't become like Christ. 
Becoming like Christ is a journey of surrendering ourselves so Christ in us makes us more like him and helps us to live according to the gospel we want, right? So in those struggles, it's about not meeting the struggle head on. It's about surrendering, getting more open to what Christ is trying to do in us. But there's a second side of this. Knowing the gospel and completely ignoring it and doing whatever we want. That's a totally different ballgame. Totally. And, you know, and I'm pretty convinced this is why the majority of us Christians don't read the Bible. Because if you're going to read the Bible honestly, you've got to deal with what it says. It's one thing to come to church 30, 40 times a week. I mean, 30, 40 times a week. Wow. 30, 40 times a year, right? You listen to 30, 40 sermons, or maybe you don't listen, right? So it's easy. You're on your phone, checking Facebook or Twitter or whatever you do when you look down. I know, you're taking notes. I know. I know, that's awesome. Good. Anyway, um, and then you can say, well, I didn't hear David say that. I didn't know the Bible said that. See, it's easy. But when we read the Bible for ourselves and all of a sudden Jesus is talking about loving your enemies, what are you just going to tell Jesus he's wrong? But we, we do that by walking inconsistent with that. We're just basically telling God, no, you're wrong. And Jesus talks about how we need to forgive and we need to, to live grace and love in the world and we need to go to Matthew chapter 25 where God is, the final judgment is all about what we do with the least of these. So we hear Jesus saying that, it's really hard to ignore it, right? That's why I am convinced most of us don't read the Bible. This year I'm in the middle of it again, but there, there are times I just put the Bible aside and just focus on what I'm going to be teaching. But we should read it to know if we're living consistent. But here's the thing, either way there's good news. Whether we are struggling to live consistent with the gospel we believe, or whether we are just flagrantly ignoring the gospel we claim to believe, there's good news. And we see it in Paul's confrontation of Peter. And please watch this carefully, because this is such a beautiful modeling of the gospel that can encourage us in our own walks where we're struggling, but it can also teach us how to help others who are struggling in their walk. So, Paul certainly acknowledges the problem. Okay? He acknowledges the problem. Hey, Peter, what, what are you doing? So there's, there's step one. You acknowledge the problem. But then, notice, he doesn't focus on the sin anymore. What he does, he brings in the truth of the gospel right away. Right away. See, Peter didn't need threats. He didn't need judgment. He didn't need condemnation for the sin that he was living in. What he needed was to be reminded of the truth. The beautiful truth of the gospel. So I'll paraphrase what Paul said to him. Peter we're not justified by our obedience to the law. That's not what makes us Christians, Peter. We're not saved, Peter, because we were born into a certain race or a certain nationality or a certain religion. That's not what makes us Christians, Peter. God alone saves us because he loves us, Peter. The God of this universe loves us. He loves you, Peter. He's caused his mercy to shine on you, Peter. Your embrace of some sort of natural, national or cultural or racial superiority is not consistent with that gospel, Peter. God loves everyone the same, Peter. 
You received his mercy. Remember this. And then you will be able to show others mercy again. And this is especially important for Peter to hear. Because remember, Peter was acting out of fear. Fear. And 99% of the reason people don't live according to the gospel they claim to believe is because of fear. A lot of us men won't acknowledge that, but it's true. We're afraid. We're afraid of something. Fear is inconsistent with the gospel. And so, of course, it leads to behaviors inconsistent with the gospel. Think about it. If fear has nothing to do with the gospel, and that's Jesus talking, not me, then to use fear is completely, is going to make us inconsistent with the gospel. This is why identity in Christ alone is so important. We've been talking about identity here for weeks, the last four or five weeks. Where do we find our identity? If you find it in your group of friends, if you find it in the community you're a part of, if you find it in your money, in your good looks, in your strength, in whatever you find your identity in, that's going to lead you astray from the gospel. Unless even, unless your identity is in Jesus Christ alone. See, here's what identity in Christ alone does. If we know we are loved by God, the eternal God who gives life forever, and he loves us, then what do we really have to fear? Honestly. When you really think about it, what is there really to fear? The God who, who holds life loves us. Paul knew what Peter was afraid of. And he knew that when someone acts out of fear, how important it is that we treat them properly. Peter was afraid of a very real threat. Paul knew that. Paul was part of that threat before he became Paul. He got it. So Paul did not focus on Peter's sin. He focused on the gospel that could save him from fear. The gospel could save him from fear. For he knew once Peter embraced that truth, he would be free of fear and able to live according to the gospel once again. Isn't this a beautiful lesson for all of us? Hear this. Guilt and fear are a currency that has nothing to do with the economy of God's kingdom. Nothing. You know, I really hesitate. When I was younger, it was easy as a young man, and because I knew everything, right? All young men know everything. And it was easy to have all my litmus tests for what made people real Christians. I, I used to love that. We were so arrogant when we were young. I remember this big church we were part of in Southern California. We had about 2,500 people. And we, we would all sit around, all the leaders of this church, and talk about the most arrogant things because we knew, we knew the truth. We would literally sit there and say, hey, if Jesus was to show up again like he, like he did back then, what church do you think he'd go to in Southern California? Well, ours, of course. Got <laughs> to be ours. Has anyone seen that phenomenal? There's a phenomenal cartoon going around right now. So there's this uh, chart, like, Sam, you, I, did you send that one to me? There's a chart that starts with Jesus here, and then it just keeps breaking out, breaking out, breaking out into all these denominations, all these branches. All, you know, and you're way down here, like a thousand tiny little branches. <laughs> and, and I think it's some kid has his hand up. So you mean after all this time, finally we know the truth? Isn't God lucky to have us? 
So I used to have these litmus tests when I was younger. That's what I'm getting at. See how far away from the gospel I was. But anyway, so I used all these litmus tests. And I don't like litmus tests because everyone's in their own space on this walk with God. And you shouldn't really throw litmus tests at people, what makes them Christians or not. Let's just get to heaven. And we'll all be surprised who's there sitting next to us, won't we? Which I think is why people hate grace, because they don't want people sitting next to them that they don't like. <laughs> but I'm convinced the older I get, there is sort of a litmus test. Fear and guilt. And when I hear people trading in fear and guilt, they don't know anything about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you or people you know are trading in fear and guilt in religion, in politics, in anything, it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Jesus said, fear not. Fear not. Let's not be traitors in fear and guilt. Let's instead be traitors in grace and love, for only grace and love wins. That's what God uses. That's what we should be using. And when our identity is fully in this gospel of grace and love, we can live accordingly, and I know this, because of guys like Don Mark Susan did. This is the man from the second scenario I gave. Some of you might recognize Don. I've talked about him before. He's worth talking about a lot. See, he was the pastor of St. Philip Lutheran Church in Littleton, Colorado. A small church when he took it over, that in a little more than 10 years he grew, helped grow into a vibrant and active church, over 1,000 people, that Don would have considered solid Christians. Until one day, that killer in the story that I talked about was 17-year-old Dylan Klebold, who with another boy massacred some 13 people, mostly students at Columbine High School, before he killed himself. We know all about this stuff way too much, don't we? That was a long time ago, Columbine. I still remember the day it happened and watching the news. We're so many families in this church. Just, just think. Just think for a second about being in Columbine and getting the phone call that your child is still in the high school. You've got to put yourself here before we finish the story. You've got to. Because either the gospel's true or it's not. And if we're going to claim to believe it, then let's believe it. So this guy, deep conviction that God is a God of love and grace, Don took the funeral of Dylan Klebold. He wanted to share that message of grace and love with the boy's family. What a beautiful gospel thing to do. And that was the beginning of the end of his job at St. Philip's Lutheran Church in Middleton, Colorado. Because the parishioners of his church, a thousand or so people that loved him and loved hearing the gospel, didn't agree that he took that funeral. And worse, the Christians of the greater community at that time, the Christians, were the most vocal about what he did. But despite the fact that he knew he would lose his congregation and eventually his job, Don remained available to Dylan's parents, offering them forgiveness and support 
and the love of Christ. Don Moxhausen did not live out of fear. He lived out of his identity in Jesus Christ in the gospel. So what about us? Do we live out of fear or do we live according to the gospel? It's a pretty simple question. The gospel is pretty simple. Hard to live out, but Christ in us will help us live it out if we surrender to it. But as long as in our minds we hold up idols of hate and division and isolation, that's fear. Listen, please. When we or someone close to us is living out of fear, we need to remind ourselves or them of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we will have the courage to live in line with the gospel again. Remember, Peter got back to living in line with the gospel. Remember, Peter was martyred for the gospel. He got back to living in line with it, living not out of fear. So please, in 2017, let's covenant together to examine our lives. And yes, we need to examine our lives honestly. This is what Paul was getting at in Ephesians. We were darkness, now we are light, we are light. But even being light, he says, find out what pleases the Lord. Don't just tell God he's wrong. Don't tell God he doesn't know what he's talking about. Find out what pleases God and let's walk that way. Where we find ourselves struggling, or worse, where we find willful disobedience, let's seek God's mercy that we would have the courage to live differently, to live out the gospel fearlessly, for the gospel is exactly what the world needs today. Amen.